0: This podcast sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ASIS has been the society for information professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information by the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information and by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Customer loyalty, the idea that a customer will return to you repeatedly, is a hot topic these days. Brandon Schauer lays out an experience-centric approach to fostering and creating loyalty by systematically impressing your customers again and again. His presentation, The Long Wow, challenges creators of customer experience to plan across channels, time, and disciplines to identify a progression of seducible moments. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome to the Long Wow. Um, we're gonna get started and go, go pretty quick to start off with. So first, what are the things we're gonna talk about today? Um, we're gonna to talk about a story of Long Wow. That's how we're gonna start, just to get a feel for it. I'm gonna uh, get, get through it in a pretty good clip, but um, just to give us a sense of what Long Wow is kind of about. We're gonna talk about why that really matters, why should we care as, um, as IAs, as user experience professionals, why should a business care about it, And then third, we're going to talk about how to make it possible. Um, Overall, the one big point I want to make is I feel this talk is really about how do we practice IA and UX in a different way. Um, I strongly feel that if we all just go to conferences, pick up best practices, apply the same best practices back at home that everyone else is, User experience, information architecture will never be strategic within an organization. If we do everything the same way as our competitors do, the executives who who work with us will always just think, oh, well, we do it the same way they do it. Let's just do it cheaper. But if you do it in a way that's unique, that connects with something distinct about the organization you're in, if you practice it in a different way than your competitors, your, your practices will become strategic to your organization. You will no longer be perceived as solely a cost center. So, things we won't talk about. It's not about the long now. It's not about the long tail. If you are expecting that, that's somewhere else. Go read a book, please. Um, And we're not going to be talking about anything Web 2.0. So, (laughs) let's talk about the short story. I want to tell you about two different devices, okay? Here's the first one. Um, Anyone know what this is? Pedometer, yes. Okay, so, this pedometer does a couple of simple things. It tracks distance, time, pace. Um, It keeps track of your calorie burn. That's kind of nice. And it keeps a seven-day history. So if you want to see how far you walked or ran or jogged, you know, two days ago, you can look that up. Kind of cool. Kind of nice. But what strikes me about this device is that on day two, it's the same same exact same device. And then on day three, on day four, and on day five, it does the same freaking things. Okay, So if your life changes, if if you want to move from running to walking to um, some other sport, whatever the case is, it doesn't adapt or change with you. Um, Your your life has changed, but not necessarily it. Let's compare it to this device, okay? Um, This is probably a story that many of you know, but I'm just gonna try and tell it to you in a slightly different way. So it also tracks distance, time, pace, and yes, it tracks calorie burn, and yes, it keeps a history of your previous runs or walks. But the different thing about this one is it fits into your shoe. It has no immediate interface on the device for you to look at it like that ugly LED on the other pedometer. The other thing is it connects to an iPod Nano, which probably explains the two logos now that you're seeing on this pedometer. Um, And the third piece of it is very interesting. Because you have it in your shoe, because you have the iPod Nano, Um, It communicates to one another, and the nano becomes an excellent little interface for looking at the data that this little pedometer is generating. Kind of cool. So what does this actually enable you to do? Let's take a first example, okay? You're out on your run. Okay? You're going along. And then it says, hey, you're on mile two. And then it goes back to your music. It's really subtle, it's really nice, but you can't even imagine the other pedometer doing anything like that, right? But suddenly this one does it. It's really subtle. Um, They call it the voice feedback. It's just a little bit bit of wow that happens that you weren't expecting, but it's really, really nice and compelling. So let's keep on going. Um, Once you get back from your run, because it's nano, you can sync it. Not only does the music sync, but your run data as well. So a lot of interesting things pop out. You can visually look at your run. That was never possible before in the running experience, but you can actually see where you peak, where you drop off, how the run went. Um, You can look at your run, uh, your different runs over time. You can look at how this week went. Did I run as much as I planned to? Um, What are my good days? What are my bad days? That sort of thing. You can um, also build out routes for yourself using uh, Google Maps. I love that Nike does not insist on using all their own technology. They'll work with Apple. They'll work with uh, Google to make it all possible. They don't have to be the best at everything. They don't have to try to do everything. So you can build out a route and say, hey, how far do I want to run? Is this how, how much I want to shoot for today? Kind of cool. So synced tracking of your uh, pedometer onto a more vivid interface. That's pretty cool. Um, Definitely something that the other pedometer won't do. Let's go back to the running trail, okay? We're out there. We're on mile four. Let's say that's where, where we uh, normally drop off, so what is the, uh, what is this device going to help us do? Well, you're starting to drop off, you're going slower, and then all of a sudden you can t- press the button. It's deep, it's the of the you're, the you're back jam- up and you're Uh, So you may think this is funny. This is actually the number one downloaded uh, power song (laughs) from the Nike Plus site, so people actually want to get their Rocky on. Um, (laughs) Let's keep on going, though. Uh, From the desktop, you can also network with other people and build groups that say, hey, here's how long we want to run this week, or here's how fast we want to go, or here's how we want to compete against each other. So this is the loser buys lunch club. And so suddenly you can do something you couldn't ever do before. You can have running partners in two different locations. Okay, never possible with the old pedometer. You'd have to work a lot or build out some kind of system to do it on your own, but suddenly it's possible now. Pretty cool. So collaborative running. Something else that they delivered sort of after the launch of Nike Plus uh, to build these cool kind of experiences. Another case, okay? Um, Runners, many runners love to go to events where they run for a charity, it's altruistic. Maybe they're just running for themselves to see if they can do that marathon. But you had to be, like this is Union Square in San Francisco, you had to be there to actually do it. Nike Plus, they now make these sort of events. You can be a part of them, you can be a part of the um, altruism, uh, raise money for charities, whatever. Wherever you happen to be in the U.S., you can take part in this kind of event. Um so that's pretty cool that you can build these kind of networked running events out. So, pretty interesting little exper- experience. They have all these little pieces and parts to how Nike Plus works, and then they add on little experiences on top of it over time. They came out with voiceover feedback, sync tracking, and power songs, and then started adding on new things that people could do, collaborative running. Uh, Network running events. They also have things like sport iMixes where you can download um, iTunes lists that are exp- explicitly made for running. They're good to run to, so no, um, I don't know, uh, Edie Brickell or something like that that's <laughs> going to set your heart going a little bit too slow. Um, and desktop widgets. Um, they're building in new parts, new elements to the overall experience, new touch points that um, are coming out over time. So, These are two very different devices, even though they sort of occupy the same place in our minds. Um, One has to pack in all the features up front. At design time, um, before it is manufactured, everything has to be thought of then. With the Nike Plus system, though, new experiences can unfold over time. They can still launch something much after, um, much after the, the device has been manufactured. They can still deliver. New types of experiences. So maybe they kind of thought about network sporting events or or running events at launch, but they didn't have to execute it then. They could say, hey, let's see how the um, uh, collaborative running works out first, if that's really something viable before we buy into this next stage. And so they can really unfold that and expose that over time. So this is what we call the long wow. Why do we care about that? Why do, should businesses care about it? Why should we try to design for it? a couple of years ago, Bain and Company started to ask this question of firms. Are, your, are you customer-focused? So they went out and they did a survey of the leaders of 362 firms. 95% said, hey, yeah, we're customer-focused. Yeah, yeah, sure. So 80% of those, when asked, said, yeah, and we also deliver a superior experience. So Bain & Company said, okay, good. Sounds nice. Let's go ask your customers, then, and see if they agree that you deliver a superior experience. So of that 80%, what percent do you think their customers actually agreed? Eight. Okay. Not too great. So, when we ask this question, are you customer focused, obviously no, but I think this big red area represents a whole lot of opportunity for the rest of us. A lot of job security, maybe, um, in terms of there are a lot of experiences out there that need addressing from a, a user experience perspective. So Bain & Company went on and said, okay, well, how do we tell, from a customer viewpoint, how well are you actually doing in terms of delivering a superior experience. So they asked this of customers, and Jared uh, referenced this this morning. How likely are you to recommend this product or service to a friend? And this simple question uh, was inspired by uh, work that Enterprise Rent-A-Car was doing to just drive customer focus throughout their organization. And this ultimately became the Net Promoter Score, um, NPS. Some of you probably uh, might groan when you see this because you use it within your organization. But it became a way to at least get a rough feel of how focused, how superior your customer service, your uh, customer experience might be. So there became a a rough way that you could start measuring customer uh, loyalty. Why customer loyalty? Um, Because this question essentially says, do you like us enough to recommend it to other people? means you're probably going to stay with us yourself. We care about customer loyalty because it's a lot easier to keep an existing customer than it is to get a new customer. It means we're delivering good experiences. It means we're doing the right things right to keep our our right customers happy. So we have some rough tools. Uh, Jared also mentioned CE11 this morning, but uh, the the, um, Net Promoter Score is also another good tool. But we need to ask, how do you actually create customer loyalty? That wasn't answered so well uh, by the Bain & Company research. They more focused on just how do we tell whether people are doing it right. So how do you create customer loyalty? Um, one approach, the knee-jerk response of every MBA is, let's have a loyalty program. Let's assign customers little numbers and give them gold, silver, um, platinum cards, and tell them that they're a loyal customer so they get a certain medal. That's not an incredibly powerful approach. It works in some arenas, sometimes with travel, but it's actually a very crowded way of doing it, that 75% of of, uh, consumers actually already have a loyalty card. Why are they going to use your program? Um, Even if you, uh, in the travel space, where it works very well, if you have a loyalty card with, let's say, um, uh, American Airlines, I'm gonna uh, set it up for failure a little bit here, and then you also, but you can fly to the same destination for a relatively same price for via Virgin America, I'm going to guess you're going to go Virgin America. So, we've this came out of some research uh, Adaptive Path in the field with um, financial services companies. The financial service company said, "We think our loyalty program is really important and core and strategic to what we do. We want, as a part of the research, you go out and do to look at." how this loyalty program is perceived, how we can increase the value of it, what customers love about it. We went and asked the customers. We specifically recruited people who were, you know, the silver, gold, or platinum customers. And we found out most of them didn't even know they were part of the program. Okay? Those who did know they were part of the program knew it because the top of the statement said it, but they didn't actually know what the benefits were. And we told them about the benefits. They didn't really care that they got, you know, a discount on a credit card, that they got, uh, uh, free ticket to the baseball game or whatever the case was. They actually just wanted the services that they were paying for. They wanted financial security for the future. They wanted good service support from their financial advisor. They wanted to co- retire comfortably. They didn't want all the benefits that had nothing to do with the service they were actually paying for. So these kind of, kind of tired approaches don't necessarily work so well. I think that's what caused uh, the CMO of Orbitz at a recent conference to say, if you want loyalty, Get a dog. Okay? That it's, that's a simple kind of relationship where that can happen, but um, if you really want to engender loyalty, you're going to have to go deeper. You can't just assign someone a number and they're going to behave loyally like a dog might. You have to build a relationship with them. So I'm going to go to the sage advice of this thinker, the Grinch, who was speaking about Christmas, but I think he could have just as easily been speaking about customer loyalty. He said this. Christmas is something, isn't something you can buy from a store. Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I think uh, customer loyalty is essentially the same thing, that it means more than just giving someone a number and a card. You have to go deeper. You have to start thinking about relationships. So what does meaning more actually mean? What is the Grinch talking about? So, I'm going to read my slide now like you're not supposed to do. Meaning more means repeatedly creating notably great experiences. True loyalty and the word of mouth that comes with it evolves naturally from the great experiences you have with a company over time. I think over time is real key. You can impress someone once, but they will eventually forget about it. But if you're able to do it repeatedly through an experience and a relationship with someone, that is a relationship. That is the, the fertile ground for loyalty. Second point, notably great experiences are punctuated by moments of wow, when the product or service delights anticipates the needs of or pre- pleasantly surprises a person. I've been in so many conversations recently when we're talking about what really impresses us, what are great experiences, what do we really like, and a lot of it comes back to those points of, hey, I wasn't even expecting this, but here it was, and, and wow, was it nice that they thought from that perspective. But don't take my word for it. Um, here's uh, some research that um, was done by a gentleman named Daniel Kinman. He's a Nobel Prize winner for um, some theories involved how, how uh, people perceive and act on risk. But this is a work from a different area called the peak-end rule. Um, imagine that these are two different experiences, that as the spark line goes up and down, your experience is getting uh, better or worse over time. And what he found is that our experiences, as we perceive them, as we look back upon them, Are not the sum or not the green area of this, these charts. We don't remember the entirety of an experience. What we actually remember is the highest point in the experience or the lowest point. So keep that in mind, too. And we remember where the experience left off. So in these cases, the peak on the bottom one, much higher. So think of that as a moment of wow, where we really impress the customer. how we actually remember it is an average of your best moment or worst moment and how the experience actually ended up. So you could think about trying to get high uh, usability across all of this experience. It may not necessarily improve it because you never got above average, but if you're able to find the points that really matter and punctuate those and give those love, that could really create a difference in how customers perceive the experience they had with you um, and what you're doing. Another trick is also end high. So what are these wow moments? So let me tell you about one. This is an a accidental observation I had. There was a Good Grips measuring cup in a um, store. It's about at eye level. I saw someone walk up to it and look at it, picked it up, and then notice when you turn it, they actually look like this. And the guy literally said, wow. Because suddenly, OXO is making a little part of your life a little bit easier. You'll notice that on the, the angle, they actually show how much water you have poured in there. I don't know about you, but my kitchen counter is not up here at eye level. So, if the normal Uh, measuring cup, I have to do this constantly, because I have to measure precisely, because I'm a really bad cook. So they've made that little piece of my life really easier. So this is, since we're in the kitchen, my little recipe for WoW. It's about deep customer insights. It's about empathetic design, so that we're always keeping those insights in mind as we're designing it. And we're able to mix those two things together and, and include great experience design that really says, hey, this is the wow moment. Enjoy it. That can be really powerful, and that's how we start to create a wow. So doing a wow is really good to do once, like I said. But when you're able to do it over and over again, as Oxo happens to do, that's when I think we start to create a relationship, and that's what I mean by the long wow. So the long wow is how to systematically Serve and impress your customers over and over and over again. So looking at a lot of cases of who does this well, um, who doesn't, and trying to piece apart, how would you do this repeatedly? Um, I think it comes down to four elements. First, you got to know your platform for delivery. Think of all the touch points you have with customers so that you can think of which ones to pull into play for a wow moment. Um, using these together can be very powerful because. One piece of communication can say, hey, get ready for the wow, and the other touch point can actually be the wow, for example. So um, think of it as your palette. For example, let's take Weight Watchers. They have meetings. That's what everyone tends to think of when they think of a Weight Watchers program, that they go, you go there to learn about healthy eating. But they have a lot of other touch points as well, and you can probably literally go much, much deeper than this. But What they had to do is every once in a while they roll out a new plan for how healthy eating can happen. It's always changing. Understanding nutrition is changing. And so they have to roll out and coordinate these touch points to deliver these plans to their customers. So they start with meetings, but meetings aren't enough. They have to coordinate that with their tools online, because you're only at a meeting once a week. So the tools online deliver the details of the plan where you got the education of the plan at the meeting. And then finally, uh, I don't think they've necessarily nailed the channel, but they've started developing uh, mobile tools because you don't eat at a meeting. You don't eat when you're sitting in front of the computer, but you do need the, the, the tools to track and understand how your, how your behaviors actually are when you are at the place where you're eating. So that's Weight Watchers' idea of how to think about and coordinate these touch points. So the question is, can you map out your touch points like this and literally say, here are all the ways we go to and, and touch Customers. This is using some of Jared's thinking from this morning of thinking of experience in its totality, not through just one narrow sliver of a channel. And then can you think about what are the three areas that we want to bring together to actually create a wow moment? How can you coordinate those? Um, and so this is the first step of creating the long wow, is actually managing your platform, your palette of touch points, so that you can deliver them. Second, tackle a wide area of customers' unmet needs. Where can your organization be really, really passionate about? What does your organization love solving the problem of? What will they never be satisfied with that they have somehow solved it and they can walk away from it? So, um, this is about targeting that kind of dimension so you can always go back to it for new insights, always pull back more information um, to drive your, your future design. So, OXO spends a lot of time understanding the human factors and the behaviors around cooking to get inspiration. they go back there again and again to get new ideas. In fact, the organization was founded based on someone's uh, Sam Farber with his wife who has arthritis and watching her try to use a can opener and realizing a tool that would be good for her, that would make it possible to to cook would be excellent for the rest of the world. And so that's their philosophy of how they generate um, new ideas, new insights to take back to their design process and create new products with. Let me give you another example, though. Um, this is an example of TripIt. TripIt is something I actually use to help me organize my travel here. The space is very crowded with people who want to sell you trips, who want to sell you um, rental cars or, or hotels or uh, flights, but they just help us organize it. So I'm gonna play a little bit of movie here. Let's watch me do this. In my inbox, reservations from Hertz for a car. Sounds good. What all I have to do is forward this Hertz reservation to this address called tripit.com. I'll just send it along. Tripit somehow knows how to process that. I don't have to deal with filling in any forms or anything. They've taken that complexity out of my life. So we wait a little bit wa- longer. This is the long while part. There we go. And now, suddenly, Tripit sent me and said, hey, we processed this for you. You can go look at it now. I click takes me right to the page of my Miami trip. I've already planned uh, the flight, the hotel Those are already in there, and it's integrated with it, maps, and the car. Which day and when <laughs> it can happen. So all this has been done for me. The, all the overhead and the work of organizing travel, they've taken care of for me. So every time I do this, it's a little bit of a moment of wow that it actually works, but it's also incredible because I think they can continue to work in the space of organizing travel for a long time. And there are a lot of problems to solve, and there are a lot of opportunities to go after. Just think of beyond um, maps and weather. You know, do I need guidebooks? Do I need um, other accessories? Things like that to make this a good trip. So I think they can stay, stay there for a long time and keep on drawing new insights um, to continue to create long wows. So third point. How do we create and involve a repeatable process? Process term from this morning. Um, There does need to be a certain amount of rigidity, I believe, uh, a rigor, let's say, to make this something possible that you can do again and again. What I try to think of is what is something your organization's really good at right now? It could be something like financial evaluation of what's going to be the return on this and being really uh, smart And bullheaded, maybe, about about knowing you're spending your money right. Maybe it's great at supply chain. Maybe it's great at research. What is your organization really good at? And then how can you marry the work that you do as a user experience designer, as an IA, with that so that you can create something really powerful? I think when you start to work with what your organization's really strong and good at and integrate that with your own processes, you're much more likely to succeed. Um, This comes from a little bit of experience working with a financial service company again. They're naturally good at finances. Imagine that. So by working with their accounting team and estimating out the value of different, um, different user experience projects, we were able to pick design objectives that had the biggest impact on the organization, and then suddenly their user experience team had huge amounts of credibility. Not only that, but they also had great relationships within the organization. Knowing what you're good at and then integrating with it creates a lot of of rigor so that you can do things again and again and drive good ideas through the organization. Zipcar is a good example. Um, Peter Meerholz of of adaptive path recently uh, interviewed the CEO of Zipcar, who's going to be at our uh, fall event called um, User Experience Week. And Zipcar happens to be really good at quality management of how to look at a system, find the er errors in it, and uh, eliminate those errors so it's a smooth process and a smooth experience. They talked about they have a wall, and this is not literally the wall, but this is my imagination of what the wall looks like. It goes end to end of what are all the steps in a process that a user goes through to rent a car. So it starts with, you know. When does the user first learn about it? How do they register? How do they go through the process of driving a car for the first time regularly? What happens when an accident happens? What happens if there's a customer service request? All those sorts of things. And they've mapped out the entire process on the wall. So that they can see and match the data with what is the real experience like? What are we measuring? What are the analytics saying? All those sorts of things. So they know they can zero in, say, on a particular Um, new ideas from customers to to apply or things that aren't going so well that they need to solve. But because they've done this, I think they can really incorporate their ideas about service design with their ideas about quality management and act on those problems or those opportunities so much quicker. So the third step, then, was evolve your repeatable process. Know what you're good at, integrate with it, um, and make that something that can flow quickly through your organization. Fourth point. And final point. Planning and staging the wow experience. There are kind of two dimensions of this. First, planning overall. How do you have a pipeline of new wow moments that you're delivering to customers at regular intervals? Um, it's tempting, very tempting, and this is uh, something that, that uh, I have a hard time arguing with with clients, that if you designed an experience, pushing the whole thing out is one giant release. That's very tempting to do, but then how long is it going to take for you to follow up on that? What are your plans for following up on that? So, when you're able to release things as meaningful, separate experiences, you're actually giving the customer a chance to appreciate each one and see how you're changing and evolving over time. But it takes a lot of planning to actually do that. Think of Nike, for example, who um, over time has released different components of their Nike Plus system on top of that, was able to l- release different kinds of experiences, and then came back and started adding on new types of components to the system, the desktop widgets, and Nike now has a sports band so that you can get visual readouts instead of just audio readouts on how your, your run is going. That takes a lot of planning a lot of rigor. The other side of this, though, is chorea- choreographing, choreographing, choreographing? Yeah, that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, The wow moments. So how are you going to deliver it so that someone can really appreciate it? How are they going to know that that's a wow moment? Plan that out. Don't just expect for you to deliver it and everyone go, that's great. You have to really roll it out in a way that's surprising, that feels like um, you've really done something great for the customer. So I'm going to use an example. I guarantee you this is an example you've never heard of. It's about a a client who told me the story about needing a radiator. He fixed up old Pontiacs. It's a Firebird. And part of fixing up the Firebird, he needed a radiator. And he looked around town, he looked at his, you know, parts cars that he drew from, and there was no radiator. So next best thing, look on the web. Okay, did the Google search. The first result that popped up for Pontiac radiators was radiator.com. So he went there, looked at Radiator.com. This wasn't looking too happening. Probably wouldn't be where I'd order from. So he went back, minimized this window, went back and looked at some of the other results, eventually found some of the usual suspects, Napa, other people who sell auto parts. And then all of a sudden, the window that he had minimized popped open again. And suddenly this little window said, hi, I'm Harry. I'm here to help you with what you need. What can I help you with? He's like, okay, well, whatever. So he typed back in. They ended up having a little bit of a conversation. Harry said, oh, cool, Pontiac. You know what? I'm the Ford guy. I think you should talk to our Pontiac guy. That's Earl. Earl would love to talk to you about Pontiacs. Why don't you give me your phone number? I'll have Earl call you right away. So he's like, eh, what the hey. So he gave him the phone number. He expected to hear from Earl like two or three weeks later when Earl got around to it. Instead, Earl called him in just within a minute. Okay, the phone rings. It's Earl. They talk about Pontiacs, how much Earl loves Pontiacs, what, what kind of uh, Firebird had he found, what's going on, what do he fix so far. Had a great talk about that. And Earl said, hey, where do you live? What's your zip code? And so he told him. Earl said, hey, I think I have two radiators within uh, the East Coast, where you live, I think one of them I can get to you on your doorstep tomorrow morning. And so they conducted the tra- uh, transaction right then, uh, with support of the phone and the website, and then he got it on his doorstep the next morning. So what looked like a really terrible experience, Radiator.com was actually choreographing. They were using that website is just like a service window, like a physical real-world service window where people came up to it and they just served them as they got there. So I wonder how many of us think about delivering experiences like that, that just really please and and, uh, know those special moments that are really going to delight a customer. So that's the fourth point of planning and staging those wow experiences. So you're doing them at regular intervals, but you're also choreographing each one. So when you you do it over and over again, these four steps help you make it repeatable so that wow occurs at those regular intervals. What I like about the long wow is that unlike other forms of planning, it really plans strategically around the customer experience. It's not about what operations do we have, what investments maybe have we made, but it thinks about the experience, and what experience do we own, what experience we should own, and let's plan everything else a lot. Let's organize and align the other things we do around that. And one of the exciting things is when you get really good at the long wow, you can even screw up well. Okay? So this is an example from Flickr. This is what it looked like last year, one time, when they had a planned outage of the servers. They knew they couldn't serve the site to their regular customers, so instead, they invited their customers to enter a coloring contest. Go offline, do the kind of things that you'd enjoy doing on Flickr online, enter a coloring contest. So when you upload your photos when you're done, some of them look like this. You tagged them, and then they awarded people, I think, uh, free pro memberships to Flickr those people who had won. (laughs) By the way, up on my blog, and I have that, my blog listed at the end of this, um, I linked to the winners (laughs) of the Flickr Color Contest. I linked to Peak End Rule, um, and more details on that, more details on a lot of things I've been referencing along the way. So this has been the long wow. Um, I actually don't think the long wow is for every organization. Like I started off saying, I think we have to, Practice user experience, information architecture, design differently within different organizations. Um, So actually within uh, an upcoming book from Adaptive Path, which will be released uh, later this month, I cover two other ways in addition to the long wow that you can practice design differently based on, you know, what is the strategic focus of your organization, how much control do you have over the user experience. I would caution you, you know, think carefully whether this is the right kind of design for you to practice, the right type of user experience for you to practice, or whether it's something different. So a lot of great content in this book. Also like that um, Don Norman seems to really like it. Um, He was complaining with us that he was upset that he couldn't put it down. It kind of ruined his day. Uh, Also worth noting, um, you can go to tatabath.com for our newsletter, our blog, and we have three upcoming events, um, which with This nice little code, you can get 15% off of of any of them. We love talking about stuff like this um, and inviting other people who who love to share their information as well. So um, I think that is it. So thank you very much, everyone. Well not not busted, just stuck. So if you have a question, if you could just come up to ask. Or does anyone have a wow moment they'd like to share?
0: I just wanted to um, ask your opinion and feedback because I've started reading Indy Young's Mental Models book, and I mm-hmm. think it really relates to what you're saying about the long wow and how you have to keep the long-term and short-term wows in perspective. So I just wanted your feedback on that.
1: Yes, um, Indy's book is on my stack next to my uh, bed, so I haven't gotten to it yet, but um, of course, from being an adaptive path and her being one of the founders, I'm... Some familiar with it. I think very much so in being able to look at your entirety of your organization and how it matches up with the entirety of the user's world and how they think of doing the things they do and carefully picking off. What are the areas we actually... Um, so those of you who d- maybe don't know about mental models, um, by Andy Young, it's one of the books out on the, uh, in the library for purchase. Uh, the process is basically looking at, um, through research, what are all the activities that a user does in relation to what they're trying to do with your organization. And then going through and mapping to that, trying to match up, what are the things the organization actually provides? And undoubtedly, you end up finding things that the organization has over-delivered on, has more functionality than a user could ever use for one activity, and then has completely ignored other activities. And I think it's a good planning tool for thinking about where should we be? And there are p- areas that you should purposely ignore as well. So I think it's a great way of getting sort of that, that long-term, um, very quick picture of what is the entirety of our relationship with the customer and then let's consciously plan what we support and what we don't support. So good parallel. Hi, Jed.
0: I'll go running. Uh, so you, you mentioned the need to choreograph mm-hmm. and the temptation to put all of your great ideas up front when instead, you know, a bit better plan. I'm wondering if, if on the flip side of that, if you have any thoughts or examples, whether successful or unsuccessful, of companies or products that have um, either tried to or have added that wow experience without that careful upfront planning or choreographing, sort of maybe an established service that then decides hey, now we've got these ideas, we want to add this wow later, and they haven't, maybe they haven't carefully choreographed or planned.
1: Yeah, um, it's funny. One of our workshops, we teach an exercise that's somewhat about planning wow moments, that how do you meaningfully evolve over time from a first release, second release, third release? And um, it, uh, our, our case, business case that we give them is called Hotel Ganache. Ganache is like uh, a thick, rich icing for cake. And so one of the teams thought they were going to be very cute. They said, okay, we're gonna plan the first release, and it's gonna be called Cake. In the second release, it's gonna be called, um, uh, filling. In the third release, it's gonna be called Icing. And, um, think very carefully about that metaphor, though, because there are actually big mistakes in that metaphor. Everyone can serve cake. All right? but it may be the icing that actually delivers the wow moment. So we corrected and changed over their metaphor because it's actually kind of appropriate. It's kind of cute, but it's kind of appropriate. What's really great is delivering a cupcake. And then a cake. And then a multi-tiered wedding cake, where there's icing at every release, where someone's getting something good all the way down the pipeline. So um, it's not enough to start off with just, hey, we're going to shoot to be up to par with our competitors and try to match them feature for feature. If um, some MBA is coming at you with that dreaded feature matrix comparing you to the competition, just run down the hall the other way. Um, Because that's just basically saying, we want to be like everyone else. And instead, it's better to focus and say, what do we truly do differently? How are we going to build an experience that's uniquely different than what else is out there? So it pays off to ignore what other people are doing and still do something special in the short term. Actually, that brings up a question that I had been having about, you know, you start with a cupcake, then you go to a cake, and then a multitude. Do you f- see that people find that they need to do bigger and bigger things to get the wow moment, or is it enough to just keep doing
0: different things? Or how do you manage that?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. So I, I, if you look at the peak end rule, I don't think you necessarily have to go bigger and bigger each time to maintain that kind of relationship and keep the average high. What does happen with wow is, it only sustains so long. So that's why you really do have to know what you're following up with soon after, because the Nike run, eventually I'm going to be over the power song, and that's just going to be part of what I expect from my relationship with with this organization. One of the other very hard things to do is stop doing some things. Um, one of my favorite diagrams is, that I've seen someone draw lately was, um, things we do versus things we don't do, and things we should do versus things we shouldn't do. And in that intersection are things things you shouldn't be doing, but you are doing, and it's very hard to quit doing those. (laughs) Um, And uh, because sometimes it even costs money to stop doing things and kill them, but that can improve the customer experience just by clearing the clutter.
0: Um, I've got a question that's kind of the converse of uh, what the last few have been. Um, What do you do for customers who come to the experience late? They miss the first few wow moments, and they're confronted with a product that might be uh, so cluttered with new functionality that they have trouble,
1: uh, you know, understanding what it does. Excellent question. So what is the onboarding experience then? So like Zipcar, you have to look at it as an overall relationship over time. So you're taking care of those early customers who are just onboarding, who are just becoming a part of the experience, and think of that as a flow if that is how your, your, um, your business works. Some businesses, like wedding planning, you, most, most people only go through once. Um, And so it may be a flow like that. If it's something like Zipcar, where someone comes and stays, then you have to really look at that onboarding experience as unique and separate from the everyday experience. So I almost think of it as a straight line that goes into a churn of, we have the straight line onboarding experience that we have to manage as a pipeline because we need those new customers, and then loyalty is really about keeping them once they're there and having wow moments within that. Um, I think I just talked a little bit about how do you kill off things that you shouldn't be doing anymore, reduce the clutter. But I think that onboarding experience is real key of how do we just pace things so a user gets deeper and deeper over time? How do you not um, inundate someone with the full functionality of eBay, but just get them to their first bid and making that a great experience? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Are you with eBay?
0: Oh, (laughs) brilliant. That's it for our time. We have the poster session coming up. Thank you, Brandon. That was fantastic.
1: (laughs) Thank you, everybody.